wonder what images or songs come to mind when you think of Noah's Ark. For many of us, uh, I guess especially if you've grown up in church or you've helped a lot with Sunday school or, or, or that kind of thing, it's hard not to think of Noah's Ark like this. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard not to think of Noah's Ark as a rather cramped menagerie in a cartoon boat with smiling, fluffy animals. And to sing along, the animals went in two by two, hurrah, hurrah. It's hard not, not, not to think that, isn't it? Noah's Ark is a famous, familiar story, even for, for people who've never been to church or have never read the Bible. Chances are, if you know one story from Genesis, you know this one. But the problem is that for many of us, the story that we think we know is one that's been commercialized, secularized, sanitized, sentimentalized. It's become a children's story with colorful pictures of animals. And Noah is something of an early David Attenborough. But if that's the picture of Noah's Ark that we have in our heads this morning, the danger is that as we come to this passage, we're going to be too busy mentally coloring in a pair of giraffes that we miss the seriousness of what's really going on. This is not a children's story. I don't mean by that that we shouldn't teach it to children. I just mean that when it was made into a film, which it was, it was not rated you. It was not rated to be suitable for children. And earlier this week, Rachel and I were talking about that, that film, uh, Star Studded Cast, uh, Russell Crowe, and a, a whole bunch of others. I have to confess, I'm not usually a massive fan of Bible stories being put on the big screen, purely because they rarely stick to what the Bible actually says, and the Noah film is no different. But one thing that I did really appreciate about the film is that it captures something of the gritty, intense reality of this story. The flood came as God's judgment on the whole world. It's a serious thing, weighty thing. And it's a story that teaches us about the judgment that will come one day on the whole world and how, like Noah, we can be rescued from it. They're the two things we're going to see this morning, judgment and then rescue. So first of all, listen to Jesus' warning of judgment. Listen to Jesus' warning of judgment. Chapter 6, verse 9, begins another new section in the book of Genesis. They always start the same way. This is the account of dot, dot, dot. So um, this is the account of Noah and his family. Now, verses 1 to 8, which we saw last week, they kind of set this story up a bit. And in verses 11 and 12, we're sort of reminded of those verses that we, that we looked at last week. In chapter 6, verse 5, we were told, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. We saw last week, sin has spiraled to such an extent, the human heart is so 
enslaved to sin, that God's heart is deeply grieved. God isn't apathetic or or aloof from the, the suffering and injustice and wickedness he sees in the world. He doesn't miss it. He sees it and he is deeply grieved by it. Genesis 6 shows us that the human heart loves sin, but the heart of God laments it. And he's he's angry about it. And what we see in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6 is that those evil thoughts and wicked inclinations are sort of working their way out in the way that people live and act. We're seeing Cain and Lamech's violent traits spreading everywhere across the world. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. It's a deliberate contrast to Genesis 1. If you remember uh, back to when we started this series in Genesis, when God makes the world, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But now, God saw, and behold, how corrupt the earth had become. We saw in chapter 1 how God had commissioned the first human beings to fill the earth. To fill the earth with more God-glorifying, God-imaging people. And in verse 13, the earth is filled with violence because of human beings. Creation has been corrupted by humanity. The earth has been polluted by human sin and it is filled with violence, abuse, assault, injustice, cruelty. All all the things that we read about in the news every single day. Humanity has descended into ruin and destruction. And so God warns Noah about the coming judgment. He says in verse 13, I am going to put an end to all people. For, here's the reason, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. In response to human sin, God has determined to destroy humanity. And so God warns Noah, judgment is coming. I wonder though, maybe you feel as you read this, isn't God kind of overreacting a bit? You know, he's going to wipe out the whole of humanity. It feels a bit much to us, doesn't it? It's interesting that there are lots of other ancient accounts of a huge flood which wipes out the whole human population. That suggests it's an event which really happened, etched into the collective memory of every single civilization that walked the earth. But in those other accounts... The reason that the gods flood the earth is because of human noise. Humans are too noisy. The gods are kind of, you know, sticking their fingers in their ears and think, oh, stuff this, let's just kill them all. Now that is an overreaction, isn't it? That's classic for pagan gods. But the Lord is not like that. He does not delight in judgment or do it flippantly. 
Judgment is coming because sin has spiraled, because wickedness and corruption and violence is everywhere. All people on earth have corrupted their ways. And a universal problem requires a universal solution. And so God's judgment on complete corruption is complete destruction. In Hebrew, those two words sound alike, corruption and destruction. It's showing us that the punishment fits the crime. Humanity has ruined the world with its corruption, and now God is going to ruin them. They have destroyed the world with their violence, and now God is going to destroy them. It is a just judgment. And it's a good judgment. It's a good thing, isn't it, that God cares about corruption and violence and wickedness? It would be terrible if he didn't. All the injustices that we see in our world that go unpunished. But there is a God. This passage shows us there is a God who does care about that deeply. Who sees every act of wickedness and injustice and who promises he will not let sin run rampant forever. He will not allow evil to prosper forever. He will bring an end to it. And in verse 17, God tells Noah that the form that this judgment is going to take. He tells Noah, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Everyone and everything will perish under the floodwaters of God's judgment. And then in chapter 7, it happens. Chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, and that precise dating, it's meant to show us this is an event that really happened. On that day, all the springs of the deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The big thing, though, that we're meant to notice in this is that the water is coming from every direction. There's a, a deluge coming down from the sky in relentless, pounding rain. But it's not just coming down. The water is bursting up out of the ground and the sea. It's like creation is being put into reverse. If you remember back in Genesis 1... As God forms and fills the earth, before that, the earth is a kind of watery wilderness wasteland. And part of God's work in forming the earth, especially on days two and three, is to separate the sea and the sky, the waters above from the waters below, and to form the dry land out of the sea. But do you see what's happening here? The land is being covered over by the waters once again. The separation between the waters above and the waters below is breached. The flood is a kind of de-creation. God's creation is coming undone. The world is being put back into reverse, back to a watery wilderness wasteland. 
And so day by day, the waters rise higher and higher until even the mountains are submerged under this watery judgment. And then we get those terrible words, don't we, in verse 21 of chapter 7. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that moved on the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People, animals, creatures that move along the ground and the birds wiped from the earth. And again, it's reminiscent of Genesis 1, isn't it? All these animals that swarm and move on the ground. It's language that sounds like Genesis 1, except rather than the animals being given life, they're being given death. Rather than Adam and people having the breath of life breathed into their nostrils by God, that life is being taken away. And that, that description in verse 21, it's deliberately repetitive and emphatic, as if to tell us, when we say everything, we mean everything. Everything and everyone perished. This is a scene of complete desolation and destruction. Everything that has life drowns under these waves. It's like the whole creation dies. And I, I don't want us to miss this reality. Through the flood, the world becomes a, a mass graveyard. This is a serious, sobering judgment, isn't it? This week, uh, I came across a kid's talk on Noah's Ark. And the kids are asked what sounds... Noah can hear from inside the ark. And the kids are meant to shout out, cows mooing, cats meowing, sheep baying, dogs barking. And I thought to myself as I read that, above the noise of the animals in the ark, I'm sure the sound that stayed with Noah for the rest of his life was the sound of people screaming as they drowned under the waters of God's judgment. I realize that's deeply uncomfortable, but I told you this is not a kid's story. This is serious, sobering judgment. But this story is not just about what happened to them back then. It matters for us because this story is a, a picture of what will happen again in the future. Not by a flood, but by fire. And to understand that, we have to understand that the, from the, the humanity that's described in these verses, we haven't really changed. Humanity is still just the same. We're by no means as bad as we could be, but every part of our existence is stained by sin. 
Every part of our society is polluted by evil. Our communities, our community here is still filled with corruption and violence. Our city is. The former mayor of Liverpool, for goodness sake, still under investigation for allegations of bribery and witness intimidation. Corruption and violence. Whether it's abuse in our homes, anger in our hearts, or fraud, or assault, or abortion, or stabbings, or shootings, or slander, or swearing, human society hasn't changed. We're still just as corrupt and violent as we always were. And so God will judge the world again. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 24. He says, as in the days of Noah... So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Do you hear Jesus' warning? As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is coming to judge the world. And the flood is a reminder and a promise of that coming judgment. And it will be just like in the days of Noah. The sun will come up, people will go to work, kids will go to school, people will be scrolling through Instagram, putting their washing out. Just another day. But it will be the last day, and judgment will come. The Apostle Peter says the same thing in his second letter. Some will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It's common, isn't it, for people to mock the idea of Jesus returning again to judge the world. It's just medieval scaremongering. The world carries on as it always has done. There's nothing to worry about. Where is this promise coming? But Peter says if we think like that, we forget the flood. Just as God judged the world once, he will judge it again. And I realize that's a deeply difficult uncomfortable truth for us it is one that our culture mocks i find it helpful that even in peter's day it was mocked and in noah's day too no doubt noah was building a massive boat in the middle of the desert not a cloud in the sky what do you think people said to him the idea of judgment seemed as ridiculous in noah's day as it does to ours But Noah trusted God's word about that coming judgment, even though he couldn't see it. The writer of the Hebrews tells us, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, 
in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Noah couldn't see the rain. He had to trust God's word. And and we must do the same. God has brought judgment and Jesus says he will do it again. I, I know it doesn't necessarily feel like that or look like that in our world. We can end up doubting it because of that. I get that. In in lots of parts of the church, this is downplayed, even denied. But Jesus is not messing about here. We must listen to his warning about things not yet seen. Judgment will come. Are you listening to the warning? That's the first thing. Listen to Jesus' warning of judgment. And secondly, like Noah... In holy fear, we need to accept Jesus' offer of rescue. Accept Jesus' offer of rescue. Through the flood, everyone and everything perishes. All life is destroyed. Chapter 7, verse 23. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People, animals, creatures that move along the ground were wiped from the earth. Except for one man and his family. Noah. Only Noah was left. And those with him in the ark. You see, in a corrupt world of wickedness and violence, Noah's not just the best of a bad bunch. We're told in chapter 6, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. See, Noah lives among the corrupt people of his day. He doesn't live in a monastery or an ivory tower. He's among them, but he isn't one of them. He's a remarkable man of God. He is righteous. He's not defined by the corruption and violence of his day. Instead, he's marked by integrity and kindness. And he is blameless, wholehearted in his devotion to God, unwavering in his trust in the Lord. And like Enoch, who we met last week, he walks faithfully with God. And we see that, don't we, in the story. Noah, it's interesting, he doesn't actually really do very much. The only thing we're told that he does four times is that he obeyed what God commanded. Noah's different. In a world marked by corruption and violence, he is righteous. And he is the only one. The only one. That's why God makes a covenant with Noah. In chapter 7, verse 18, God says that he will establish, confirm this covenant that he's made with Noah. A covenant is a binding promise, and it's a promise that God will save him and those with him in the ark through this watery judgment. So God's covenant with Noah, it's a promise that he will save him. And so throughout the story, we sort of flick back and forth between the judgment and the people drowning and the ark and the rescue. And actually, I think our main focus as we read the story is on the ark, isn't it? We're told lots of times that Noah's in the ark and his family and all these animals. Again and again, that's, that's what our attention is drawn to. 
as we picture the ark floating on the waters of judgment, we're meant to marvel at God's gracious rescue of Noah and his family. So chapter 8, verse 1, is the turning point in the story. So in chapter 7, the waters rise up. In chapter 8, verse 1, God remembers Noah, and then the waters recede down. All because God remembers his covenant with Noah. It doesn't mean that God forgot up to that point, but it means that at that moment, God recalled to mind his promise to Noah to save him, and he's going to act to save him. In the end, then, in, in the story, there are only two places that you can be. You're either outside the ark or you're inside the ark. They're the only two options, and everyone Everyone outside the ark perishes. But all those inside the ark sail safely through the judgment. Eight people are saved in all. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. And countless animals. But they all owe it to the one. Think about Ham, okay, the second son of Noah. Ham isn't saved because he is righteous. Ham is saved because Noah is. But Ham is hidden with Noah. He's with Noah inside the ark, and so he gets saved through the judgment too. So God's Covenant with Noah is, is a promise to save him and, his, and all those with him through the ark. But God's covenant with Noah is not just a promise of salvation. It's a promise also of a new creation. See, in the flood, creation dies, but it dies in order to rise again. Inside the ark is basically a starter kit for a new world. Four human families so the world can be filled with people once again. Pairs, male and female, of every kind of animal. Not because God wants a zoo, but because he's preparing to, to recreate and to repopulate the world. He's planning for a new creation. And chapter 8, it, it's meant to sort of mirror a little bit the pattern of Genesis 1. The earth is gradually reformed from this watery wilderness wasteland of the flood. So the dry land appears, the tops of the mountains are visible. Then there's vegetation on the trees. Noah, in verse 13, he sees the earth is dry. Sounds like Genesis 1, Noah saw and behold, it was dry. It's Good for life once again. And then the last part of this new creation, the people and the animals are sent out. They're recommissioned to be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 8, verse 17. Bring out every kind of living creature that's with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. It's just like Genesis 1. All over again, it's a... This story takes us from decreation to new creation. The old world dies in order to rise again. 
And through the death and destruction of the judgment, a new creation is born. And it's all down to Noah. Because of that one righteous man, salvation is possible for his family and for the animals. And that's what it's like with Jesus Christ. We're going to see next week, Noah sadly still carries with him the same old sinful heart of Adam. He carries the old creation into the new creation. Noah is not the one. But Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the the truly righteous one who is totally blameless. Jesus Christ who has walked faithfully with God for all eternity. And when you come to Jesus, you're coming to someone whose every inclination and thought of his heart is only good all the time. And yet, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, took the place of the unrighteous. On the cross, Jesus stands in our shoes and he himself drowns under the floodwaters of God's judgment. Jesus dies bearing the the wrath that we deserve for our sin and corruption and wickedness and violence. Jesus went through judgment. And three days later, he rose again from death to life, from decreation to new creation. And it is the same for every single person who trusts in Jesus, who who is in Jesus. Salvation through judgment, life through death into a new creation. That's what's true for all of us who trust in Jesus, because to trust in Jesus is to be united to him. Uh, The New Testament offer says it's to be in Christ. And being hidden in Christ is the same as being hidden in the ark. Judgment falls, but we are rescued through judgment and brought into a new creation. And so all who are hidden in Christ will live forever, will be raised to live in a renewed world of eternal joy and perfect peace and resurrection life. And Jesus guarantees it. It is his new covenant promise to us, sealed in his blood. And like the the dove which is sent out by Noah and finds the olive branch, the the sign that a new creation is being born, so the Holy Spirit comes and fills our hearts, the sign that we too will inherit the world, the new creation. See, like Noah, only Jesus deserves to enjoy that life in the new creation. But our hope is not that we are righteous enough to see life, but that Jesus is, and that we are in him. 
we're united to Jesus Christ. Like Noah's family with him in the ark, we get taken through judgment and out the other side. So as I close, please listen to Jesus' warning of judgment. But more than that, please accept Jesus' offer of rescue. Jesus promises that he will come to judge the world and we will not escape. But God does not delight in judgment. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he delights to save all who come to him through Jesus. And Jesus is the, the true and better Noah who takes us into the ark, into himself, to deliver us from the coming wrath. And there is plenty of room, even for you. The end of the world will come. The world will be washed clean. This world will die. But it will rise again. And if you're in Jesus, if you've trusted in him, the end of the world is just the beginning. Let's pray.